You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you today. Um, So, if you were here when Fritz did the announcements... Where, if he's, is he in here? He's not in here. I'm going to throw him under the bus. Um, so I told him, he said, yeah, I'm going to talk about the construction out there. I said, well, whatever you do, don't say something like a year from Christmas. <laughs> so just talk about the first part, and then, I don't know, we'll figure out the rest. And uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't help himself. And so I audibly groaned from the, from the back. But it is exciting to see that beginning. I know that um, uh, as soon as that, the first phase is done, we will uh, reap the fruits of that, particularly in an area of our children's ministry. And so very much looking forward to that and looking forward to us being able to uh, communicate the progress as we go along. So if you've got your Bibles, if you would, would you go to uh, Micah chapter 5? We are in a study in the book of Micah. We don't have very many weeks left. Um, but it will take us at least through the end of the um, election season. Uh, by God's grace, it will come to an end. Um, and I'm not talking about the study of Micah. The, um, it, but if you remember last week, so, so chapters 4 uh, and 5 go together in this. And so uh, chapter 3 was this indictment. And chapter 4, last week we looked at, and it was the... Uh, sort of the reestablishment of the place of God, Um, Jerusalem primarily, Zion, the the place where uh, the glory was going to be restored forever. And so the the idea is that um, Christ will come back, He will reign as the King, and He will reign in a place. He will reign in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be the center of the world. It will be the uh, where the, the glory emanates from. It will be the place you find, if you read the other minor prophet Zechariah, you read the end of Zechariah, it's the place where during the millennial kingdom, people will um, travel uh, from wherever they live on the planet uh, to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to come and to worship. And so chapter 4 was about the place being established. Um, that it would fulfill all the glory that it was meant to fill, this Jerusalem, this Zion. In chapter 5, it really is there are two parts. If you have a place where somebody's going to rule, you have a place that's reestablished, you've got to have one that rules. You've got to have the king. And so the first part of Micah chapter 5 is not about the place so much as it is about the person who is going to come and rule, the one worthy that is the Messiah. The last half of Micah 5, we'll look at next week, it'll, it will be the um, character, the nature of the people of the kingdom who, who will be ruled over uh, during that time. And so that's the, uh, th- that's the setting for Micah chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first six verses this morning. And um, uh, so if you will, I'm going to read the first six verses, we'll come back and we'll talk about them. In Micah chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. 
Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, you who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for uh, they shall dwell secure, and for, and for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will rise up against him, seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The word of the Lord uh, through Micah, the prophet from Morasheth. Well, from the very beginning of the Bible, um, after you have the account of creation in Genesis chapter 1, and then the further account of creation in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 3, you have the fall of humanity. And so uh, sin is going to enter the world, Adam uh, and Eve will be tempted by the serpent. They uh, will eat of the tree they were expressly told not to eat from. At that moment, they gain a knowledge of good and evil, which comes with it. The uh, sin is brought into the world. They realize they are naked. They are ashamed. They try to cover themselves. They hide from God. And God comes into the garden, calls out to them, and an encounter happens. Well, the encounter ends with Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. But in the midst of that, there is a hope that is promised. It is not the end of the story. While it is a great tragedy and the fall is um, incalculable throughout history, it's not the end of the story. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what God promises is that he promises a redeemer. He promises one that will come and crush the head of Satan. He promises the one that will come and make what has been made wrong right. And at the very beginning of the, of the story after the story, we are promised a redeemer. Well, there's a line that the Old Testament traces throughout its history. It begins there in Genesis 3.15, and that the Redeemer would come from mankind. He would come from Eve. Later on, you go to the ninth chapter of Genesis, and you find that uh, the, the Redeemer further is going to be defined, that he's going to come from the line of Shem. He'll be of the division represented by Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. Then in the 11th and 12th chapters, Abraham is called by God, and we're told in scriptures then that the Redeemer is going to come through the line of Abraham. And then by the time you get to the end of Genesis, chapter 49, you find out that the Redeemer is going to come from one of the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, of, of Jacob. It's going to come through the line of Judah. In fact, 
that's David's family. In Isaiah chapter 7, we find that this Redeemer who comes from mankind, from the line of Shem, from the line of Abraham, from the line of Judah and David's family, we find in Isaiah that he'll be born from a virgin. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we're going to read that he's going to be born in the village of Bethlehem. The Bible continues from the beginning to narrow down and narrow down and narrow down its prophecies so that no one would misunderstand the person to whom the Bible is referring. This is not a Redeemer who will rise up in his own strength. It is not a Redeemer who will rise up because of circumstances. It is not, a, it is not going to be a man for the season. It is one whom God, throughout the Old Testament, has continued to inform his people about with more specificity all the way. Well, in chapter 5, verse 1, it begins with what we would call, what I'm calling a descent into humility. Muster your troops, Micah says. O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us, a rod. With a rod, they'll strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. You might think of this as, as the last stand in many ways. Micah's hearers, they're, they're, they're called... Uh, to, to take, to, to muster their troops, to, to round them up. The, the word troops is this intentional word. It's not the word you'd use if you were speaking about an army. It's something much smaller, something vastly less powerful. And there's a siege that's coming upon them. To describe a siege, you would say it was a relentless attack against a stronghold. You, you were trapped inside. The enemy, they waited you out. And so it was either famine or internal strife or um, systematic depletion of all of your resources and energies. And finally, you, you came out or you, you, you tried to flee, but the enemy was there surrounding you, waiting for you. Most of the commentators take this to mean that the event that Micah is speaking about is um, after the Assyrian army that we've been talking about the last several weeks. After they come in and they destroy the northern kingdom and they cart all of those in the northern kingdom off into exile and they destroy its capital, Samaria, that, it, that happens in 722. In 701, about 20 years later, Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, is going to come to the, to the doorway of Jerusalem. Now, by God's providence, you find out in 2 Kings 18 and 19, um, that attack is stayed. Sennacherib is not the one by God's plan that's going to destroy Jerusalem. There's going to be one that comes later, Babylon, that's going to do that. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and do that. It may be that Micah's referring to this siege that's imminent that's coming in 701. It could be that he's referring even to a hundred years later as, as uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and the final king of the south, the final Davidic king in the history of Israel is going to be uh, laid waste. He's going to be humiliated. He'll be dragged out and his sons will be slaughtered in front of him. This idea with a rod, 
that they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's the height of humiliation. I mean, I, I would rather you, I would rather you do neither, but if you were, were going to do one, I'd rather you punch me than slap me. I mean, to be slapped? I mean, really. Open-handed, slapped. He'll take a rod and he'll slap me. It's the height of humiliation. He has no recourse. This is the king of Israel, the judge of Israel, the ruler of Israel. Maybe it's Zedekiah. Maybe it's Hezekiah. It's one of those kings who stands and in all humiliation has to take the abuse of a foreign king and has no recourse. It's humiliating. You've got to feel the weight of this humiliation. I mean, they're completely powerless. It's not just defeat. It's absolute humiliation. Israel, the kingdom of God, is coming to an end, it seems. I mean, they've gone from slavery to the wilderness wanderings to the entrance into the promised land to the three kings of the United Kingdom, Saul and David and Solomon, then the divided kingdom, which there was still some prosperity, but then there were the wicked kings and the fall of the north, and finally the end of the kingdom. That's the history of God's people. Now, you might think about it this way. If you were a child of the... 70s and early 80s. Um, there were very few channels. On Saturday, you would watch what was called the ABC Wide World of Sports. You remember this? The thrill of victory and the what? The agony of defeat. Th throughout the history of ABC Wide World of Sports, they, they would change out the clips often of the thrill of victory. I mean, something great would happen, the thrill of victory, they'd show that. It would always be relevant. There was only ever one clip that defined the agony of defeat. And I had to know more about it. I'll tell you, it was a guy named Vinko Bogata, Slovenian ski jumper. He became the American icon of bad luck and misfortune. So that famous ski fall, okay... March the 7th, 1970, he is competing. He's the number one Yugoslavian um, ski flyer. That's, that's what it was called. Um, and he's competing in West Germany. So he's competing there. He's the number one of Yugoslavia. Uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, the, he, he's a premier athlete in the world. He has won many events up to this time. I mean, it is not like you just put a pair of skis on a high school kid and said, hey, just go. It looks fun. Go down. This is a trained athlete. The snow begins to fall. By the time he's ready for his third jump, the snow becomes heavy. Halfway down, he realizes he's going too fast. And the conditions, I mean, it's, it's not right. So what he does is he tries to center his gravity. They, they interviewed him. He tries to center his gravity. He tries to sort of stoop down a little bit. He loses control. And then you've seen it. The ski catches. He tumbles over wildly, crushes into the, to the retaining fence near the, the crowds, suffers a concussion, a, a broken ankle. In 1981, they were doing a um, celebration for the wide world of sports. And so they invited him to come back. He had no idea 
that this had been used over and over and over again in the last decade, was completely unaware that his failure had lived in infamy. And so as they are announcing at this celebration, that they bring him from uh, Yugoslavia where he had uh, retired, and they bring him there, and he's, you know, he didn't, every, they announce him. It's the loudest applause that there is. The crowd goes crazy. Muhammad Ali comes and asks for his autograph. Not for all of his accomplishments, but an autograph for his failure. Known for failure. Nobody remembers this guy's wins. The agony of defeat. For all that Israel was, for all that Israel was meant to be, for all the promises that were meant for them as God's people in the promised land, it all came down to this. Their king paraded in front of the people and slapped on the cheek with the rod. Absolute humiliation. They'd gone their own way. They'd run to the end of their ramp. There was no stopping. The king is slapped down. The nation's taken into captivity. It looks like it's going to be over. It's very sad here. You might call it abysmal helplessness. Life is ruined. Well, where do we go from here? You know they had to be asking themselves that. We ruined everything. I talk to people that feel that way about their lives. They have wandered in the shadows of life too long. And it catches up. And a lot of times they sit in my office and they say, you know what, I've ruined everything. And I knew it was headed that way. I knew it was just a matter of time. But now it's, now it's happened. I've ruined everything. They'd never felt like they would ever get it back. Their hopes, their dreams, their identity, they would watch it burn to the ground. That's where we are in verse 1. It is this descent into absolute humility. Well, that's what makes verse 2 such a fresh breath of air. It's why you know verse 2. It's why it is on the lips of the gospel writers as you open up the New Testament. It's why when the Magi come in Matthew's gospel and they're seeking to know where the king is, that the chief priest that Herod assembles, they know where the king is going to be born because they knew this verse. In fact, that's what they quote. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, which means 
maybe, fruitful. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem. It, it's not it is totally unknown. It is just absolutely obscure. It is, it is uh, in Judges when Judah's territory is taken and the 100 cities are listed in the book of Judges. Bethlehem's not named there. The first time we encounter Bethlehem is in Genesis where Jacob buries Rachel by the side of the road after her death. When you open up the story of Ruth, it is where the love story of Ruth and Boaz take place. It's the birthplace of David. Bethlehem means house of bread, but, but the reality is Bethlehem was never a house of bread until the bread of life comes. Now, Isaiah is the first prophet. Isaiah and Mike, I've told you they're contemporaries. Isaiah is the first prophet uh, quoted or cited in the New Testament. And it's in his prophecy that he tells that the Messiah is going to be born from a, a virgin. The, the second promise, uh, prophecy cited in the New Testament is Micah. It, it's this prophecy. It's, it's stated here as the Messiah's place of birth, and it's going to be Bethlehem. The first two prophecies are from Isaiah and from Micah. Isaiah, the virgin birth. Micah, the birth in Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 2, you can see where that's quoted. And notice that he's called ruler in Israel. He's one who was born king of the Jews. Because he was a king long before he was born. You know, what this does is it takes a nation that has, um, has either seen or about to see its darkest day. It seems as though the light is going to go out in the nation. It seems as though the light of what it means to be God's people is going to be snuffed out. And it's, it's sad. It's terrible. And, and yet what Micah does, what God does through the prophet Micah in this verse 2, is he hearkens the nation back to himself. He calls the nation back to remember his promise. And his promise is stated in the Davidic covenant. There are three, there's lots of, you could, we could spend weeks talking about the Davidic covenant. It's, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's, it's majestic and and, and yet there are three places, I would say, that, that, that give us the, the highlights of the Davidic covenant. One guy, I can't remember where I got this, probably somewhere in seminary um, between naps. But in the first of those places, you, you might call it this, 2 Samuel chapter 7. You might call that the floodlight. It's the announcement of the Davidic covenant. It's, it's, a, it's a passage in, in which... Uh, this prophecy um, that, that God comes and speaks to David and says, look, I, I'm, you, you're going to be my king. Your son's going to be my king. You're going to have a throne. It will, be, it will be eternally established. 
It, it's, um, it, it looks at the whole line of David that comes down from David to the final Davidic king of the last days. It's the big picture. The second significant place, you might call this, that was the floodlight, you might call 1 Chronicles 17 a spotlight. Uh, the spotlight is now on the son of David. Just listen to what it says. It says, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, meaning Saul as he's speaking to David. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. His throne shall be established forever. There's a sense in which Micah, God through the prophet Micah, is speaking to the nation in its darkest day to say, look, the light is not snuffed out. I have made a promise. I have not forgotten the promise. I am telling you that my word is sure. The floodlight, there's a spotlight, and I want to read for you what we might call, what has been called, the, maybe an x-ray. It's Psalm 89. I'm just going to read a few verses. God says in Psalm 89, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. Psalm 89, the whole psalm is about the Davidic covenant. About the one who is coming. About the Messiah who's coming. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I'll punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Later he says, how long will you keep the commandment? I mean, the promise. How long will you keep it? So I tell you what, when you wake up and the sun doesn't rise, you have reason to question. Micah, God through Micah, is drawing them back to this covenant. The purpose was to show us an unconditional covenant, just like the Abrahamic covenant, just like the new covenant. It's not a covenant that depends upon man's faithfulness ultimately, but upon God's faithfulness to unfaithful men and women. He goes on at the end of verse 2, and he says, "...whose coming forth is from old." From ancient days. Maybe yours has everlasting. It could mean that what the Lord is referring to here through Micah is that it could mean it comes from the time of David, that this is historically ancient. Where the line had seemed to come through Jerusalem, through the capital, one king after another, through the Davidic line 
uh, in, in Jerusalem, but God's taking them all the way back. He's taking them all the way back to the beginning, to Bethlehem, to the obscurity, to the time when Samuel comes to Jesse and says, hey, listen, God sent me here. It's one of your sons. Let me see the best you got. And finally, none of the ones that Jesse presents he says, do you have any other sons? <laughs> one, he's a kid and he's out. He's supposed to be watching the sheep. Let's bring him here. It's taking him back to that moment. The ancient days. You know, it could mean, though, that not just historically ancient, it could mean eternally ancient. That not so much as humanity, that is confirmed. He's going to come, uh, Isaiah, through a virgin, through, through, a, through, a, through a human woman, through Mary. But he's going to come through Bethlehem. This is his humanity. He will come through the line. He will be one of us, but he is also one much greater than us. Not just a statement of his humanity, but of his deity. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. It refers to the work of the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation. The work of creation, the work of fellowship with Adam and Eve in the garden, the theophanies, the appearances of the second person of the Trinity before the incarnation, before Bethlehem, before the manger. An appearance to Adam, an appearance to Hagar, appearance to Abraham, appearance to Jacob and Joshua, to Gideon, to Nebuchadnezzar, to, to all the other Old Testament events. in which the Messiah King, before his incarnation, appeared to man to carry out aspects of his ministry to prepare them for the incarnation. When Paul writes in Colossians 1.20, he holds all things together. This one. We find out his name when we open up the Gospels. It's Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah had told us, the King of kings and Lord of lords, wonderful, counselor, almighty God. We call him by name when we open up the Gospels. This is Jesus. In verse 3, he goes on and says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. She'll give them up until the time. He, Micah, he's anticipating that there's this future time. He's, he's going to give them up. He's going to let them bear the consequences of their sin. But that will have an end. It's partially fulfilled in the Babylonian exile and return. God's people get to actually come back out of 
out of exile after 70 years. There is um, a restoration that takes place during the time of Jesus. And ultimately, though, it will be fulfilled in all of its fullness in the great tribulation and the restoration of Israel until the time for restoration is ready. And then it says, she who is in labor has given birth. It, re it refers to the nation in, on one hand. There's pain, there's agony, there's these birth pains, and from within her is going to be born the Messiah. You can see this in Revelation chapter 12. It's the most graphic picture of a Christmas morning. In fact, several years ago, uh, on Christmas Eve, I preached from Revelation chapter 12 about the dragon ready to snatch up the baby. Turns out it's not the best Christmas Eve message. It's true, um, but it frightens children. And so, but you can see it there. But also very literally, I think it's speaking about Mary. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It reflects their desire to be reunited. Brought together again. Not only the abandonment by God, but being brought back to God, but being brought back together as, as brothers who had been divided, as sisters who had been divided, as a nation who, who knew its purpose, who, who walked in God's ways united, but had years, centuries of separation. There is this longing to be united, partially fulfilled after the exile, in Ephesians chapter 2, we find that Jesus comes. He is our peace. He unites us. He makes us one. He breaks down the dividing walls of, of hostility. Messiah's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not completely established until there's unity and harmony, until all are part of the one fold of the great shepherd. Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock under one shepherd. And in verse 4 he goes on and he says, and he'll stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Stand and shepherd, and they will dwell secure. He'll stand and shepherd. They dwell secure. Literally, the verb means to sit. He'll stand and shepherd. They'll sit and enjoy peace and security. And now he will be great. The greatness will be worldwide to the ends of the earth. There won't be anyone who does not recognize the greatness of this king. And then in verses 5 and six if, 6, if you'll notice, in verse 5 it begins, and he shall be their peace. 
He shall be their peace. Not, not just that he'll make peace. He certainly will make peace. But he will be their peace. Paul ends his great letter to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Earlier he'd said in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's this phrase, we'll, we'll raise against him seven shepherds, eight princes of men. Now, if you were ever interested and thought, well, you know, I wonder, are there places in the study of the Bible where commentators disagree about a phrase in the Bible? This would be one of those places you could go and look. They're literally all over the map. What does it mean? Seven, uh, seven shepherds, eight princes. It's the best I can do. It's an old Hebrew way of saying not just this, but also that. It, it, it's, it's a way in which um, I think what Micah is describing, what the Lord is describing through the prophet of Micah is that humanity in the day will be restored to dominion. The earth's been subdued, but there will be restored working and keeping and the reigning of humanity as was spelled out in Genesis 1.28. Will be raised up. Mankind will be what mankind was always meant to be. But notice that it says, He shall deliver. Jesus is the deliverer. We do not deliver ourselves. We are not waiting for a hero to emerge on the public stage. We are waiting Him to return. In the clouds, Jesus is the deliverer. He brings peace. He is peace. Peace is what comes when the conflict is over, when the war has been won. Forever. In his first coming, he accomplishes a restorative peace through his shed blood on the cross. At his second coming, he will accomplish a final peace as he overthrows Assyria, which is probably a way of saying the the world's forces that gather together against God. He'll overthrow Assyria. He'll overthrow the Antichrist and all of his forces. He is our peace. Now, it's interesting language, this language of shepherd. When Samuel goes to the sons of Jesse, he wasn't looking for a shepherd. He was looking for a warrior. He was looking for one of great stature. He was looking for one that would look good on the billboard and sound good behind the podium. One who had the talking points was handsome and one a nation could be proud of. But we find out in that passage that God does not look upon the outward appearance. He looks upon the heart. David was a man after God's own heart, deeply flawed. He was not the Messiah. 
But he is the one whom God made a covenant with, an everlasting covenant, through whom the Messiah would come. And what's so great is that in the New Testament, it picks up this language of a shepherd. He, he'll be a king, but he's a shepherd king. So there's three places I want to close with this morning to remind us of this good shepherd, this great shepherd, this chief shepherd. If you're here this morning and you're still undecided about this, Jesus, this one from whom Genesis 3.15 has been announced, with greater and greater specificity, God has prophesied his coming until we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. He's here. He has come. In John chapter 10, John tells us that the good shepherd, he accomplishes our atonement. He accomplishes our salvation. He, he accomplishes for us the way to be reconciled to God. Jesus says, as John records in John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, our shepherd, who is our peace, came and laid down his life. He, he took your place. He took my place. He stepped in and gave his life for yours. He took all of your sin upon himself. He was nailed to a cross in all humiliation. And the wrath of God was poured out upon him in our place. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. But not only is he the good shepherd, we also find out from Hebrews, he's the great shepherd. He, he's the great shepherd. The shepherd of the sheep means uh, for us, he, he comes for us, he is the perfection for us in every good work to do his will. That God will work in us, which is well-pleasing to him through Jesus, who gets the glory forever and ever, Hebrews 13 says, now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equipped you, equips you with every good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom we glory forever and ever. Amen. The good shepherd is the great shepherd who not only saves you, but works in you. Who accomplishes in you all that was designed for you to be pleasing to God. Can you imagine? So maybe you're here in Micah 5.1. That, that's your life verse. The agony of defeat. I have ruined everything. Not so. 
Jesus has come to be your atonement, to be your salvation. He has also come to work in you the beauty of who he is. So that you stand pleasing before God. That's who you are. He's the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, we find he's also the chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Speaking to the under-shepherds and also to all of those who care for his people. As you're saved, as Christ accomplishes his work in you, that in the last day you stand before him. Well done. Well done. Because you are in Christ. The good shepherd who atones for the sheep. He's the great shepherd who sanctifies the sheep. And he's the chief shepherd who, when he comes, resurrects us, glorifies us, and crowns us forever and ever. Your life is not the sum total of now. It is found in all of the promises of God. The question this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. A familiar passage, one that we, we speak of, we... We recite, we read, we meditate upon in our celebration of Christmas. And so, Father, we thank you for that, the words of comfort that it is. And we also thank you for the context in which it appears. That, Father, your promise, your eternal promise, as you take your people in the midst of their greatest ruin, right back to the heart of your promise. That even if the light seems snuffed out, even if it seems to be the ongoing agony of defeat, that is not the end of the story. You've promised the one that will come from Bethlehem, a little obscure town of Bethlehem. The one who is from old, from ancient days. The King Eternal. Father, we await his coming. And so, Father, we pray to you this morning as you are seated high and lifted up, as you are the sovereign over all of creation, over all that is, we bring our prayers to you. Father, we do that in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is seated at your right hand, who we long for and await his coming. Do this through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.